Does not wisdom cry out? She takes her stand by the streets, cries out at the gates to you, men, I call. Of course, the way of the foolish woman is also at the highest places of the city, calling to those who pass by, a simpleton, come this way. The one who has no heart, he follows her. The righteous, he hears wisdom cry. That's Proverbs 8 and 9. If you want to turn there, that's great. Did you bring, by any chance, your Proverbs journal from the Set Apart stuff? This would have been a great week to have just had it with you. If you do, I really recommend pulling it out. Because it's in the English Standard Version. And our bulletin and the text I'm going to work from is in the New King James Version. And this is an opportunity for you to test me when I say New King James is better. Right now, you can have the ESV in front of you. It's in the Pew Bible too. You can use the bulletin however you want to do it. Compare and contrast. Because while I would like to snap my fingers and say we're going New King James because I think so and I'm the smartest guy I ever was, um, that's not good enough for me, really. As your pastor, that's just not good enough for me. I think so. I think we should have the New King James and just be done with the ESV. There's a lot of reasons. But the biggest one I think is so obvious that if we just spend some time looking at them next to each other, you'll be like, I have my own reasons. <laughs> It'll be really clear. Again, so here's an opportunity for you to, to, to join in that conversation. I can only ask you to join, or I can't make you. Um, and so if you have that journal, that's a good way to do it. In either case, uh, find your way to Proverbs if you can, in the Pew Bible or in your own Bible, because I want to look at verse 1 that I just quoted a moment ago from chapter 8, 8 verse 1, the beginning of this epic poem inside of a much bigger epic poem, inside of the tribute to epic poetry. Um, and poetry meaning like the ancient word for prophet before Hebrew made prophet a common word. Right. So if you were a Greek person and you went to the oracle at Delphi, you're as much going to the poet as you are to the prophet in some ways. Uh, they are charged with the history of what is true. Right? And they're to tell you it in ways that you remember it. So Solomon does this in, in spades, you might say, um, in Proverbs, uh, in Ecclesiastes too, but Proverbs particularly. And the more you look at it, the more you'll be stunned at how deep the book is by itself, just Proverbs. Uh, the whole Bible works this way and I think is just as interesting. But I think Proverbs is built for you as a Christian to know better than most books in the Bible because it's faster to understand it, right? If you try to understand Isaiah, you can do it as a layperson. It can be done, yeah? But you will need to work. You will need to work at it. If you would like to understand Proverbs, you just read a verse a day for like 30 years. Just do it. You're going to understand the book backward and forward and you're going to be wiser than your enemies. For the word of God will always be with you wherever you go. You don't even have to know it. It'll be on your lips. That's the promise of the book, okay? And now here, wisdom's like, hey, I'm telling you, come to me, and I'll give you all this stuff. Right? That's verse one of chapter eight. Does not wisdom cry out and understanding lift her voice? And, and to some extent, the question is, isn't wisdom obvious? And the answer is yes. But then you have this problem called the fool. 
And the fool doesn't think wisdom so obvious. In fact, he despises both wisdom and discipline. Because he sees that wisdom accepts suffering and lives with it, and he doesn't want that. He thinks he can be wiser than suffering. In any case, this epic story again it starts in verse 1 with this cry of wisdom, and it runs all the way down to verse 11, where it's like wisdom's crying out, and she's more valuable than rubies. Nothing you desire compares with her, it says in verse 11. And at times I used to wonder about rubies there a little bit. Why rubies, right? It's going to talk about gold. It's going to talk about silver. Okay, I kind of get that. You know, rhodium is not mentioned. You know? uh, but uh, rubies, why not diamonds? Well, it's kind of funny, don't you know? Diamonds aren't that valuable compared to rubies, like in terms of how many there actually are on the earth, right? A red gem of pristine quality is very, very difficult to come by. Well cut by a jeweler, all that kind of stuff. So rubies are, are very valuable. They didn't even call them rubies, though. The word just meant like crimson. It had to do with, uh, I think, flower petals as well. It's a really powerful thing. They're just, you know, she's more precious than crimson. <laughs> but it means like a stone where the light is crimson as it moves through it. And then, well, do you, is that, does that not get you? You don't think a ruby's cool? So what do you desire, the rest of the verse says? What is it you put in its place? You know, a Tesla, you know, an iPod, you know, a horse. You know, I don't know what, you know, uh, it, it doesn't compare with her. Because whatever I have, my dreams come true. If I'm a fool, it doesn't do me any good. That does me damage, does my children damage, does my neighborhood damage, does everybody damage. Because I'm a, And the way the Bible really would say it at a certain point is I'm a damned fool. Because fools are ultimately damned by their stupidity, which is a refusal to trust God. And that's how Proverbs talks. It's, it's what we're supposed to be aware of. And not, not let the fool who we're supposed to love run stuff. <laughs> you know, there's a difference between love your neighbor, love your enemy, and let them tell you what to do all the time and do it without thinking about it. There's a wide gap between those two things, right? And wisdom is learning to see that gap and then not be duped by the man who postulates that he knows much but doesn't know much because he despises wisdom and discipline. And again, the fool will show you with his tongue over time. In this whole section, get some wisdom, 8, 1 to 11. Um, I, I want to point out verse 8 too. Uh, the words of my mouth are with righteousness, nothing crooked or perverse in them. You, you have there in one single verse both a proof text for the inspired inerrancy of the Bible itself from the Old Testament, uh, and you also have a proof of justification by grace through faith by the word of God alone, which is Lutherans to just drive us completely happy. <laughs> like this is a power-packed verse right here, right? Memorize this one if you can, right? Uh, that there's nothing crooked in the Bible. The Bible's straight, and the world is crooked, and it's so crooked that straight's a bad word for a lot of the proud People. Pride's a bad word in the Bible, did you know? <laughs> Funny how it all turns upside down, the way of the wicked. It does. The Bible says that too. He turns the way of the wicked upside down. I'm direct quote. Proverbs chapter 3, I believe. So uh, the section we're going to move into now, though, hopefully you've been like, like, get wisdom, right? That's the idea. It's trustworthy. Now wisdom's going to talk about herself. And the debate over who wisdom really is is enough that we kind of have the Nicene Creed as a result of the argument. Because there was a time when a guy named Arius wanted to use 
Proverbs 8, verse, uh, it's going to be verse 24. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Um, verse 25, before the hills, I was brought forth. And then it says, he drew a circle, I was there, right? So the question is, when wisdom is brought forth, one, is wisdom God, like Jesus, like the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? Um, or uh, is wisdom a creature? And then the argument Arius made is yes. Like, like wisdom's Jesus and Jesus is a creature, Right, and that's where you got to be like, well, no, <laughs> that's, that's not at all what this is saying. And I'm going to suggest maybe it's not even Jesus. Maybe it's the Spirit of Wisdom, who is referenced with great regularity in the Old Testament as being the Holy Spirit. Like that's a name for the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is the Spirit of Wisdom, <laughs> and He, He, uh, is God, the God who inspires the prophets, the God who causes miracles to happen, the God who inhabits you by faith. Uh, this. Holy Spirit, uh, who is God, who was with God in the beginning, clearly from all the rest of Scripture, is not a created being. A nice thing created is right. Arius was a fool. He was, an, he was an arrogant fool, probably made a dumb argument once in college and then decided to defend it the rest of his life and ruined his life over it, as far as his name is concerned. <laughs> now, who knows what he actually cared about? What we know is that he was wrong. That the Holy Spirit is God. That wisdom is God. That Jesus is God. You want to quibble over whether the Father is involved and how the Trinity's mystery works out in wisdom inspiring you by means of the word, you go ahead and quibble. I'm just going to trust again that the Lord possessing wisdom at the beginning of his works means the Trinitarian God is now going to be active in us now the same way he always was and through the mediation of his persons of whom the Spirit is one. And the Spirit is not one you see. You don't see spirits. You shouldn't, at least. They're lying to you. A spirit, by definition, isn't seen. Instead, a spirit, again, is something you maybe feel, like the wind. And the word spirit and wind are the same in ancient languages. Uh, but you would feel the spirit of a room, or the spirit of a place. That doesn't mean it's a person, right? But it's a way of understanding what's going on around us, yeah? of seeing that we're not just individual robots walking in here together but there's a spirituality to our religion. The Holy Spirit is the one doing all of that by the text of the Bible going inside of your body. Like as knowledge, as song, as bread and wine, all of it. So God is here as this wisdom. And now here, the middle part, the part we actually read, where God, God's wisdom speaks about inhabiting you. What's going to happen to you as you become wise? Uh, verse 13, the fear of Jesus, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Then defining that, lest you want to quibble over evil. Like what's evil? <laughs> like, like you don't know. Um, well, pride. I mentioned that earlier. Pride. And in case you're confused, not dignity pride, but arrogance pride. So it defines that for you there too. Pride and arrogance, it calls that the evil way. Uh, the word evil is very tied to like destruction. So evil in the Bible isn't evil just because we feel like saying evil things because we don't like some people. What happened was God said, and then we saw both ways, certain behaviors are destructive. Murdering your neighbor, guess what it gets you usually? Killed, actually. <laughs> A lot of the time. Sleeping with his wife, same thing. 
you know, until now, these days with cops. But, you know, back in the day, sin was something that caused problems. The evil way destroys neighborhoods. That's why it's wrong. Uh, The fear of Jesus, on the other hand, knowing who's really in charge. So he said, there's a fence. Don't go over the fence. You're like, but I can see over the fence. That's not the fear of Jesus then. He said, don't go over the fence. He's Jesus. He knows. But I can see over the fence. It seems green over there. The grass is better over the fence, Jesus. And Jesus says, don't go over the fence. And someone says, at our church, we don't have to turn off our brains because we don't, we, we question the Bible. You ever hear that one from an ELCA person? Man, I lie. That, that, that hurts me. When they kind of mean like, we turn off our brains. It's like, really? Like, that's pretty low. Uh, uh, turn off your brain when you don't believe that evil is obvious. And evil is destructive. And Jesus hates it. And that's good. So if you don't like the word hate, you've turned off your brain once in your life when someone taught you not to like the word hate. Because this verse is very clear. It's good to hate evil. And if you can't say that, what have they done to your mind with the TV? I got to ask. Like if, if it's good to hate evil, it's like, oh, but that's hate. Like, whoa, who are you listening to? It is not hate to save someone from someone else evil who is doing evil to them. And if you must stop the wicked person, that's very good. That's why we watch movies and listen to stories. So the good guy can save us, right? That, that's what it's about. So to hate evil is to trust Christ. And to recapture that is a good thing. It doesn't mean you hate your neighbor. (laughs) That's what it says. But my neighbor's evil. Well, then this calls for wisdom, doesn't it? Not so easy as a checklist. I have to think about what a person is, what a man is. We are complicated beasts. Hate the evil way. This is the beginning of prudence it mentioned, right? Verse 12, knowledge and discretion. Verse 12. Discretion, that's mitzmah. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. I like the word framework for it, but often translated as sound wisdom or discretion. Uh, Prudence, very powerful word that's not really in our vocabulary anymore. And I think this illustrates a lot. The word prudence left modern English through it becoming something of a slanderous word levied at women who weren't loose enough. Let the reader understand. And so they called them prudes. They took the word prudence, which is a form of wisdom. It means not doing things that are going to get you hurt. And they used it to insult the women of our culture long enough that we dropped any Christian pretense of behavior in terms of college life. I mean, you're watching, right? Like, you know what goes on, I hope. So, like, they used prudence as a slanderous term, and we let them. And I suggest we recapture prudence. Ladies, you want to be anything, be prudent. Powerful word. Prudence is how you don't lose at strategy games, by the way. It's not like this is some feminine attribute or something. It's, it is a powerful word. But women, you are, as godly women, to be prudent. It's your call. Uh, it's your call. Uh, wisdom dwells with prudence, finds knowledge. You can go on and on. It's so deep. Um, let's go forth to uh, the perverse mouth I hate. So when, when God hates things that they destroy, one of his summaries for that is things that are not straight. Right, So by straight, think of like you're going to build a building, right? And you have your plumb line. And if your plumb line ain't straight, your building's going to fall over. So it's all in that kind of a metaphorical talk. And then so perversity as a word, it really means to twist it. So when God says he hates a perverse mouth, it isn't just about how, you know, this guy watches late night cable or something, right? Uh, it's, it's about how the words can't be trusted, no matter what the man says. 
He says one thing, he means another. He hides what he means, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't like that. Why? Because it creates tension and confusion and bad feelings amongst all of us. <laughs> it's just a terrible way to live. Uh, uh, and, and it indeed leads to slander, which if you follow the Ten Commandments, you know, the lies lead to or protect the theft. Once you are, are going to get caught, that's when you do the murder. It kind of goes backwards. You want it. You talk about it. You go get it. You justify it with your actions. Right? So uh, the Ten Commandments are in reverse and showing again how perversity is the whole thing. It just twists what is uh, as opposed to counsel and sound wisdom, which the Bible says it has and it does in spades. Uh, I am understanding. I like this. Right? It's not just that Jesus or the Holy Spirit or the Bible has understanding is understanding. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that, your mind should blow and then you should realize my mind will always blow when I think about that. That's the purpose. I can't think that I am understanding. That, that doesn't make sense to me. I am not. <laughs> but he is. He's God, after all, right? I am understanding. And he doesn't say I am strength. Oh, strength? You're all worried about strength. Yeah, I got that too. <laughs> I am understanding. Oh yeah, strength ain't a problem really. I got that. Yeah, it's beautiful. And again, do you see this just as Lady Wisdom, this glorious woman at the market teaching truth, or can you see this also as the resurrected eternal king, Jesus, indeed, speaking this way, being the fulfillment of this, that all this wisdom pushes us to see him and say, amen. Yeah, uh, it's a beautiful picture coming together. By me, kings reign. I don't know if the most stunning thing in the book of Proverbs is what I'm going to say next, but I feel like it is. The first word is why we call it Proverbs. The first word can be translated Proverbs, but it's not the word Proverbs most often. Most often it's a different word. It's this word right here, rain. So you can read the Proverbs of Solomon or you can read the reign of Solomon. But doesn't it read like the reign of Solomon you think would? That's Second Chronicles, right? Like that's the reign of Solomon you would think. Yeah, because this isn't about what happened when he reigned. This is how he did it. This is how he did it. By these words, he reigned. He spoke and people went, oh, okay. That's what this promises is yours. For your kids especially. You want to raise your kids so they're godly in the home. Reign with the word of God in the home, not with your own words. Right? By me, rulers decree justice. Princes rule, nobles, all the judges of the earth. You know, the history of nations rising and falling is that the judges of the earth pagan or otherwise, but pagan, when they do righteous things, when the streets are paved, when the water is clean, when the food can be gotten, they are blessed of God by this, and he prospers their reign. And when they begin to steal for themselves and not care about the poor, well, he lets their kingdom fall apart until someone else comes along and picks up the mess and does it again. Whenever a judge, a prince, a king, a mayor, a father in a neighborhood takes ownership and does good, that's wisdom, God reigning there. And that's how we can say that even pagans are part of the kingdom of God, so far as we see it. Because indeed, we know that the church, as it's visible going through the world, is going to have all manner of fish in it, good and bad. It's a longer story, but it's, it's true. It's true. Um, by wisdom, again, you can reign over your life. I love those who love me and seek those. Those who seek me, find me. And, and my favorite part about that verse is it's almost a direct quote from Jesus, although not exactly, it's inverted. Uh, Jesus quotes it, and he changes it, because he does. He references things rather than direct quotes, but, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God 
and all these things will be added to you. If you seek wisdom, you're going to find it. There's no distinction between the kingdom and wisdom, the reign of the Holy Spirit in your life by words, yeah, the power of the word. Riches and honor are with me, enduring riches uh, and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, fine gold, silver, choice silver, all the things you can compare to it. Um, I'm going to come back to verse 20. Verse 21, that I may cause those who, in, who love me to inherit wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Like this is, again, one of those verses that's going to put your kind of modernism to the test. It's going to put your Lutheranism, I don't mean your actual Lutheran confessions, but your, your culture in the Missouri Synod to the test a little bit. Because like on the surface, that sure looks like a promise that if you seek God in wisdom, he's going to make you wealthier than you are. Like That's what it says, right? And we've been around the block long enough to know that people who promise that if you give more money to church, you're going to get more money are liars. Like we know that. <laughs> like they're liars. It's not how it works. And so, uh, you know, this verse, we come to it and we go, what do I do with this thing? Can I really believe that? Can I really believe that Jesus is going to fill my treasuries? And of course, there's this nice little hook where we can go, well, it's about your conscience. It's about your soul. It's true. This is very true. Don't let me diminish this. It is, in fact, about your conscience and your soul. That the treasury of the tent of this body being built into a stone that will be part of the temple of the living God and the life of the world to come is already filled with the treasury of the Spirit of God, who is more valuable than rubies or gold or anything else right? He's already said that. So that has to be true. But is that all that this means? Because it doesn't say your soul. It says your treasuries. And let me suggest this is just back to the wisdom of the rise and fall of nations. Right? Jesus gives you what you can handle. What do I mean when I say that? I mean, he's not going to give you something that you will destroy yourself with unless you like a damned fool, insist on taking it for yourself. But generally, everything you ask for that he doesn't give you, he's decided you don't need it, or it's going to destroy you. And both of those have ways for you to grow and learn through and from as your prayer goes unanswered. But it doesn't deny the fact that he promises to give you enough today, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you have enough today for today. And in that regard, there is a full treasury there. The only reason you would think this is a problem is if you're worried about having more in your treasury tomorrow than today. And that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that when you go to your treasury, because, uh-oh, that there will be oil, flour. And how'd that get in the pot? I don't know, Elijah says, make some bread, <laughs> right? Now keep walking forward. But what if there's no more tomorrow? What if there's no more tomorrow? It's the end of the world, is it not? Why are you worried about tomorrow so much? I get it. Go to the grocery store, right? I get it. But filling the treasuries, God always provides enough. That's the wisdom. Not that I'm going to be rich, but that having that wisdom makes being rich a little easier. Being rich is it's not fun. Like the more you have, the more you got to protect it. It's kind of weird. Yeah? And you kind of know this as Americans as you see our civilization get a little more violent, right? Uh, so being rich takes some wisdom. Otherwise, you really do tend to just destroy yourself or your family. You know? um, if you give everybody what they want all the time, that's not good for anybody, usually. Uh, 
Uh, and so wealth is something that, uh, you know, you don't want to ask for wealth. You want to ask for the wisdom to use wealth well if God gives it to you. And then what I would ask after that is, may I, with what I have, do good today and then believe that whatever I have is there to be done good with, which again doesn't mean sell everything you have and give to the poor, but it does mean worrying about how to have what you have now, 20 years from now, making money for you so you can still do blah, blah, blah. Like that's a myth. It's a false religion. That's where Jesus is going to go with money here in a little bit anyway. So we'll come back to that. But Christ says you have nothing to worry about. Wisdom says you're going to be provided for. It's all taken care of. He's going to fill your treasuries. And of course, the resurrection, uh, you'll get to see whatever you have the deposit of now, whether it's the spirit of God within you, which you do, or whatever land you get to toil on today, it gets to be something so much better when Christ returns. And I, I don't, you don't have to imagine it this way, but I, I do like to imagine as I sit on my little man-made lake that's way muddier than it should be, but there's some good fish in it, but I don't fish. As I sit over there in my little man-made lake and I look at it and I think about the place I used to surf in San Diego called Pacific Beach. Um, beautiful, beautiful little strip. I couldn't move there. If I, I quit this job, got three jobs. I couldn't move there. Man, uh, so expensive. But I think of that place right on the coast and the spread of the water and the waves and the salt there just always gets me. I miss it desperately. And I know Michigan's got a beach, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a nice place. It's a nice place. Um, it's not the Pacific. And uh, I imagine that my little lake that I toil beside as I study the word for you and prepare to come and teach with you and call on you and text you and all these things, when I look at it, I think, okay, yeah, but that's the deposit. It's just a shadow. See, the real one, it's here already. I just have to see it with faith. It's like lots bigger. There's a tower, <laughs> windmill, I don't know, lots of stuff, farmland, all sorts of stuff, and all the monkeys I've trained to do my chores for me. I, how do you want to imagine creation working like it should. Maybe it's smaller. It's more time for naps. You know, I don't know. You know. Who are you? What do you want to be? What do you do? Our life here is setting the path. And that path is good, but also in need of being redeemed because it's easy to idolize the present, which is where our other two texts will really help us today, particularly Christ's words. But let's make a pit stop in Philippians chapter 3. You can just use the bulletin if you like, but you can turn to the page number uh, or the page in your Bible uh, if you'd like to find it. Chapter 3, verse 17, which again is this exhortation to recognize you live in, in the end times, at the end of the world, and that the end of the world is not far away. Um, that's a complicated statement, and I, I have like three thoughts I want to say out of it. Let's just start with, we're in white right now rather than green because between All Saints Day and the last Sunday of the church year, Christ the King, which is also appointed white, um, there's only these two little Sundays that are kind of weakly termed the last Sundays of the church year. But in every lectionary, the last Sundays of the church year are all about the end of the world. Hence, Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year, is an end of the world Sunday. The hymns recommended everything. So since it's a lot of work, for the one guy who does all the work, not me, to do the uh, the pyramid changing, we had this little thought, well, what if instead of going white, green, green, white, blue, what if we just from all holies walk like saints to the end of the world, Christ the King? So that's why we're white right now is it makes sense for the season. And you've noticed, like, I've tried to help the green season 
of Pentecost, or it's not even really called Pentecost. It's called after Pentecost. That's how little we care about it. <laughs> it's the season of after Pentecost. Um, I've tried to divide it up here liturgically over the years so that there's flavor, right? So early summer doesn't feel like late summer, and we use the hymnal to, to make that happen. Um, and so uh, that idea of flavoring, moving toward the end of the world, then could inspire something like pyramid change. So consider it this year, uh, you know, kind of a trial. We did the same thing with uh, Reformation Sunday, and that had to do mainly with a, a, my own typographical error and just not being able to fix it. But the white, why is it here? Uh, why is white what we would have for Christ the King? White comes out when Jesus is like super present. So in the liturgy, right, in the calendar of the church here, when, does we, when do we go white? When Jesus is super present, Christmas, his baptism, right? Easter, transfiguration. Don't skip transfiguration, Easter, right? Um, and, and then, if I'm not mistaken, ascension's red. Right? So like, he went away. Now we bleed, right? Um, so uh, white is about Christ's presence. And since we are in these end times, we're going to talk about, it's the second thought I wanted to tangent on. Well, then this white reminds us of the robe of Christ's righteousness and the king whose throne we walk toward. Second thing would be then, these are the end times. Okay, what's that mean? Does it mean that if I point to the news station, I can say, well, look, they're trying to rebuild the temple in Israel. And until they do that, the prophecies of blah, blah, blah can't be fulfilled. You got friends and neighbors that think that. And they're reading the news through that cipher all the time. It's not what I mean. That's not what the Bible means. When the Bible does say that the end times began on the day of Pentecost, when the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the church and the ascension of Jesus Christ all came together to fulfill Daniel chapter 7 through 9 here on earth. Um, without needing to you know, undo all that might be said that's wrong, let's then stick with this. It means that, the end times means that, when Jesus rose from the dead and broke the grave, all creation now knows, like any day now, it's over. It's over. The devil's done. He's got no claim. The battle is finished. The only thing that's not happened yet is the guy who won everything hasn't like grabbed the spoils yet which is interesting. But maybe if you think about it this way, if I'm a king and I manage to have the skill set to assassinate my enemy who's taken some of my land, but I got my ninjas and they get in and they knock him out, but his army's still there and all the crops just got planted. I can go in and fight right now and win, but I'm going to kill the crops and all the people are going to die. Or I can wait a little while, let them gather the crops, and have a sneak attack in winter or something like that. I don't know, but care for the people. That's how God is approaching the end of the world. He won the entire thing, but he wants the crop to come to fruition. And the crop is the people. It's us. And we're actually his enemies. So then he has the power to turn to be his friends. Again, Paul, when talking about what that means as you walk day in, day out, I'm a friend of God. I was an enemy. I still carry the nature within me. What does that look like? I, I mentioned it earlier. Paul says, well, it looks like pressing forward is what it looks like. It looks like getting over it and going on again. Because as long as you're journeying through a wilderness, you don't want to get too comfortable and feel at home, really. 
I mean, can you imagine being one of the Israelites who had enough money and technology, maybe a super orb, that you're in the wilderness and you're like, I built a mansion with my super orb, with one and water and everything. And they're like, well, we're going after the cloud. And they take off and you got your mansion in the wilderness and you're all by yourself for two weeks. And what now, rich genius? Have fun there in the desert by yourself with your stuff, right? That's, that's this life. That's this life. Like, what, what are we hoarding for? What are we keeping for? Paul says, I press on. I let what happened happen. I remember who Jesus is and I walk forward. And he says, that's the model to follow now in verse 17. Brothers, join in following my example. Join in following my example. Press forward. And note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. That's that framework word in Hebrew. It would be mitzmah, pattern. Uh, You have for us a pattern for many walk of whom I have now told you often and now tell you even weeping that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ. We'll come back to that. Um, But first, on that example bit, um, parents, you got a new baby at home. (laughs) Kids can only do what they see. You'd like to think that they'll just figure it out. humans look and react. Monkey see, monkey do. You've heard it, right? Hear Hear no evil, see no evil, do no evil. It's not perfect, and it can be very rigid, but there's some real wisdom in that. And so here again, Paul says, look at good patterns. Look at Christians who believe in Christianity and seek to be like them. And then Paul says, if nobody alive fits that, Read the book of Acts, right? I mean, (laughs) look at Paul and look at Peter, for you have them as an example, right? You have them as an example. But the enemies of the cross of Christ, this would include both false Christians and pagans, everybody who doesn't believe ultimately. Notice what it teaches you here. Their end is destruction, that is, fool tears his own house down. Their God is their belly. Why? Why does a fool tear his own house down? Because he's too hungry to stop and think about not doing it. He found a cookie in the corner. He's got to get it. That, I mean, have you ever watched a two-year-old? I mean, they're just, they're just the living embodiment of this, right? They just do it. And a man, you would hope, would learn to not be so foolish as a two-year-old, yeah? and to not just serve his belly. And his glory is their shame. Again, I know, I think it said all such boasting is evil. Is that how it's said? Uh, it, it's pretty hard to say, I'm awesome, and like have it not be shameful to you. <laughs> uh, but when someone else says you're awesome, that's, of course, praiseworthy indeed. That's great praise when someone speaks highly of you. But to glory in your shame, that's, that's folly. Right? Um, who set their mind on earthly things. So the summary is they don't believe this world's going to end, and so they think they can save it. They'll stack it up, they'll store it, or whatever, right? Start a movement. Well, our citizenship's in heaven, which already is here, by the way. It's not far away. Uh, but we wait from this heaven, the Savior Jesus, who's going to come and resurrect our bodies, as verse 21, according to the power by which he subdues all things, because he's God, so he's, he's able to do that. So in this, coming out of wisdom is evident, wisdom is there, the scriptures have wisdom, and the promises of wisdom are that as a Christian, it will give you straight up hope and understanding for this life, Paul says, don't go into that thinking, I'm going to get it, and then I'll be okay. Go into it thinking, I'm going to get it, I'm going to use it, I'm going to feel like I didn't get it, i got to get some more, I'm going to use it, ah, I need some more. Oh, look, God's giving it to me. I'll just get some more. Okay, God, just, I'll just get some more, right? Like, that's the path. 
into the text, Jack. You seek that wisdom, forgetting what is behind, moving on toward today. And then finally, our Lord's words in Matthew chapter 22, where the Pharisees and the Herodians are attempting to swindle him, to catch him in his talk, uh, to play tricky with his words. And something that's not always evident right away is how the Pharisees and the Herodians really are mortal enemies. They despise each other because the Herodians are not Jews. He's a Edumean king reigning over Judea as if he were a Jew. He does not like anything about Judaism generally. He builds Greek things like temples to Zeus. That's what Herod does. And the Herodians, uh, they probably are most concerned with what Caesar would be most concerned with, which is making sure the Jews, whatever other funny stuff they do, pay their taxes. The Pharisees, on the other hand, actually don't think paying taxes is legal. That's their question. It's illegal to pay taxes to Caesar. Can you imagine an American saying, I've <laughs> it's illegal, the IRS. I've, actually, I've heard that argument. Um, in any case, for the Pharisees, though, it's in their law. It's in Torah. They're not supposed to be subject to foreign kings. No other king should rule over them ever unless they get kicked out of their land by God. <laughs> That's where the Pharisees don't realize that when they got put back in, after the Babylonian exile, they didn't exactly become perfect at that point. And so they're in the position of falling away again and reliving what happened once already under or after Josiah's reign. And that after Herod dies, uh, but, but in the reign of those who come after him, there will be a complete collapse and destruction of Jerusalem again, a picture of the end of the world. Jesus talks about that during this week. That's part of why they kill him. But they also really kill him because he's going after the biggest thing of it all, which is the money, how it works. And he's not going after it for the money. He's pointing out how everybody else, everybody playing the game, all they care about is the money. And they kill him for that. They get together for that. Because when you hit the purse, well, incentive, right? Incentive. Uh, so they get together. They try to entangle him with this question. Uh, you know, verse 16, they butter him up. We know you're true. You teach the way of God in truth. You don't care about anyone. You don't regard a person. So what do you think, right? Like, well, we'll come back to that, I guess. Uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness. And that's, I want to, want to focus on that. Did Jesus perceive their wickedness by what you might have to think of as magic, right? Miracles. Or did he perceive their wickedness because it was really obvious what they were doing because they're that evil? And I can suggest to you, it's, it's not so tough. Like you don't have to look any further than look at the question they asked. Like these are people who he's had other people tell them they're going to kill you for a while. And they come up and they're like, we like you a lot. <laughs> oh, really? Like how dumb do you think I am <laughs> that I believe you like me when I know what you do? <laughs> right? uh, and then, uh, and we like you a lot. And since you're the best teacher there ever was, answer this really hard question for us Pharisees. Do we pay taxes to Caesar? That's not a hard question for the Pharisees. And why is the only thing you would ask the rabbi about money. And you join with the Herodians for that. What a, what a greedy thing you, you see. In fact, he, just, he says it meaner than I would. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? <laughs> it's a, is that language allowed in your home? You know, that, that kind of thing. You know, show me the tax money. I, that, that's going to come. But why do you test me? Remember the temptation, right? What the devil does. You test God. What's testing? It's like I'm seeing if it will 
stay there, right? If I'm going to build a wall and I push on it and it moves, it doesn't stand up the test. The wall is going to fall down. The boundary is no good. Yeah. So when God sets up a boundary and says, I'm God, this is the boundary. Why do you go, is it? That, That test right there, Jesus doesn't like that. And he gets tired of it after a while. He'll put up with it from his loved ones. He'll be like, oh, look at the little kid. Doesn't know what he's doing, throwing a fit. I'll give him what he needs. But when you're not his, and when you're testing him because you really think you're going to unseat him in some way, and you can trick yourself on this one. Don't make any mistake. Well, he doesn't have time for you. You're not one of his sheep. He doesn't have time for you. He'll make you a sheep. But if you don't want to be, he doesn't have time for you. Around and around. So why do you test me? Like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you here? He knows. But he's trying to expose them a little bit. And he is, in a sense, asking that question. I mean, why does the devil fall? Where does evil come from? There's a good God. He made the whole world. And now there's evil. How is that possible? The atheists like to say, therefore, there's no God. Okay, sure. Problem of evil. Very good. But really, the question is just, how did the devil fall? And Jesus, like, literally looks the devil in the eye. He's like, why? <laughs> why? Why do you test me? What good is he? And indeed, well, for us who can see the devil's folly and learn wisdom, there's a lot of good that comes from it. And that's what he does now. Show me the tax money, which is a real ploy on his part. Uh, it, it doesn't say that they are in the temple. They're in the temple courts. They're probably in the outer court. In the outer court where the money changing is taking place because that's where it's allowed to happen. It's where all the animals are, where the whip thing is going to happen, right? But they have these money changing things taking place where uh, in order to buy your sacrifice, because you came from, you know, three days journey and it's expensive to bring an ox. You buy one when you get there. Uh, in order to pay for that, you have to pay with the temple money, the temple shekel. You can't pay with, with pagan money. Pagan money has a picture on it, an image of a man, and that's an idol. It's a definition of an idol from ancient times. When, when Sarah, uh, excuse me, when Rachel steals her, her family's household gods, it, it's not because they're not valuable. <laughs> they're made of gold. It's money, right? It's always about the money. So the money exchange taking place in that outer court from the idol picture to the shekel that doesn't have an idol picture, but has maybe like more of a, a menorah or an inscription of text on it. Those scales are the ones that Jesus overturns when they're measuring, you know, I brought in my Caesar gold and you put your temple shekel there and you see how much metals in each one in order to see if you're getting a good deal on the trade, right? Exchange rates. Now they just do it with computers and tell you to trust them. <laughs> yeah, back then they put the scale in front of you and, and Jesus pretty much knows the shekel's a sham. They're cheating with the shekel. They're stealing money with the shekel. It's, it's falsely weighted. But he doesn't even go after that. He goes after the fact that to have them get the shekel, which is falsely weighted, so that they can make a profit on the sacrifice of these poor people traveling all over the world for Christmas. <laughs> in order to do that, they have to exchange it with this picture that they're forbidden from having in the temple at all, even in the court of the Gentiles. They are profaning the place. So the fact that they can flip them a coin tells you they're already breaking Torah worse than they can possibly imagine because they're worshiping that coin with everything that they're doing there. And Jesus' response then to them has to be in that, in that line, in that light. 
right? That he is calling out the idolatry of money, not because of the picture on the money, but the picture shows you what we're doing usually, yeah? Um, but that we tend to see this picture that we keep as power for tomorrow. We still do it, right? We still do it. I give you a $100 bill, you think, oh, I got a good future, right? So the picture has a power over us. That's what as Christians, we just don't want to be controlled by. I'm not saying you can't use dollar bills. Use the dollar bills. It's fine. Don't be controlled by it. Don't be controlled by the story of money. Don't be controlled by the story of the IRS, the Federal Reserve, gold and silver exchange rates, Bitcoin. Don't be deceived by any of it because if you're trying to make it so that tomorrow God can't hurt you, he's going to show you how wrong you are. It's far better to trust that he has a plan for you to walk through thorny, thistled, dry ground with plenty of water and some salve on the way toward a place where it won't be an issue anymore. That's who he is. So he's not as concerned about the money because what is it? It's stored tomorrow. It's, it's a story. Money's a story. Nah. Uh, so he says, as he tricks them and catches them in all this, well then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's, based on that inscription of Caesar being on it. Which, I, I'm going to contest, does not mean that there is a church, a separation between church and state. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, in fact, if you're going to do your work as a state, you must render unto God the things that are God's, because God owns the state. He made everything, right? So it's not about that separation, but it is about the power of the sword. The power of the sword. So is it legal for me, a Pharisee, who's a Jew, who it would be illegal really for me to even touch this coin that has Caesar's face on it in Jewish sight? Like it's filthy. This is the most disgusting thing. It's an idol, right? Um, pardon me as I, I catch that thought again. Is it legal for me as a Jew to use this idol to buy food for my kids? Because that's what they were having to do. Right? And Jesus' answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, can be translated as if somebody actually has the power to come to you and say, if you don't give me enough of this picture at this time next year, I will come and I will take your house with a sword or a gun. We'll pay the guy, is what Jesus says. <laughs> pay the guy. Hey, you don't have a sword that can fight back? Pay the guy. That's how it works. That's render unto Caesar. It isn't whatever Caesar says, do it. It's not what it is. Now, Caesar said, worship was due Caesar. Pinch some incense. Caesar is Lord. Christians died rather than utter those three words. Caesar is Lord. Yeah. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. The power of the sword is the power of force and threat and shame. Render unto God the things that are God's. The power of the word is the power of influence that supersedes even your own tongue and flows from the Almighty into your head, heart, body, life, through your mouth, so that everyone around you is under the reign of God when you say, Alleluia, Amen, He is risen. They heard these words, they left and they marveled. We don't need to marvel, but let us rejoice that the great power of this man who could not be taken 
went into that lion's den to die, not be saved. And then he marks you as his redeemed one with water and the word so that on the way, this food here is not merely bread and wine, but him again, Father, Son, Spirit, at work in the flesh and blood of Jesus only in order to strengthen and preserve you, wise, steadfast in the one true faith, the life everlasting. Let's feast in Jesus' name. Amen.